Hi, everybody. It is the Sunday after, what was it, UFC Vegas 16, some Spence Garcia. It is episode two of the Sunday Digest. My name is Luke Thomas, and without further ado, let's get to the weekend's results. Hello, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. I am from CBS Sports, Showtime, and some other places. Uh, this is uh, my Sunday Digest, where we do a bit of a, well, I wouldn't call it a deep dive, just an overview of some of the weekend in combat sports. Please give the video a thumbs up, hit that subscribe button. Okay, as I mentioned, so we had UFC Vegas 16, we had Spence Garcia, and then some other news and notes. Let's start on the MMA side of things, even though Spence Garcia did play a more prominent role, at least in my ordinary occupation with CBS Sports. Um... First things first, your main event, Jack Hermanson losing unanimous decision to Marvin Vittori. Scores were two 49-46s and then one 49-45. I'm guessing, um, I don't know which judge only gave Hermanson one round. And even in that one round, I guess it was the... So, no, you know what? They, they, all the... Excuse me. Let me get the math right. All of the judges gave Vittori four rounds. My hunch is that the 49-45 was a 10-8, maybe in the first. Here was the big story coming out of this. Marvin Vittori looked great. Now, um, there is some good, there is some bad. Uh, not bad, but you know, not everything is positive. But let's start with, the, in fact, the positive. This is a guy in uh, Marvin Vittori who early on looked pretty good. He didn't beat Shoeface uh, in his second fight in the UFC. He had a little trouble against Omari Akhmedov, and then he lost to Adesanya. So if you look at his first five UFC fights, one, two, three, four, five, he had two wins, two losses, and a draw. When you consider it that way, it's not especially spectacular. But as we know, when you look at the early six-fight run of your current light heavyweight champion, Jan Blachowicz, what was he, two and four? I mean, he would win one for every two that he lost, and then eventually he just kind of turned it around. Now... I'm not comparing the two as identical. In fact, it was a little bit different for me. When I saw Vittori fight Adesanya, there were some things that I liked. I mean, right away, right, what, is, what stands out to you about Vittori? Big, strong kid, pretty athletic. Not like super quick and has this you know explosive burst, but he's very strong. He's sort of hard to hurt. He has good balance. He's He has good fundamentals. And he has a he has a clear sense about how to make use of that physicality. A lot of times, people have gifts or just sort of interesting moments of, um, or interesting situations of leverages, like how long are your arms, how short are they, how tall are you, how short are you, and they don't know really how to create a game plan that caters to that. He seems to understand how to do that actually, and that sounds automatic, but I don't think you should consider it as much. Anyway. So he had that going for him, but he was still kind of in development. So then he wins fights against Cesar Fajera in 2019, Andrew Sanchez in 2019. He stopped Carl Roberson in 2020, but that wasn't until June. Remember, he was supposed to fight all the way back in May, and there were some issues even before that. And the whole thing kept falling apart because of COVID this, or his opponent couldn't make weight, or you know, there was just a lot of complicating factors. He was waiting to turn that corner. To me, this is not only his best win by a million miles, but this is a guy who I think you can make two claims about. One, certainly belongs inside that top five at a bare minimum, top seven space um, at middleweight. He was sitting on the outside of the top ten before this fight, and you could see that that was not a deserving and accurate place of his. Um, it didn't accurately re reflect where he really belonged. And the second part is it sort of made you wonder about um, – you know, you always got to get to the UFC at the right time. And when that is, it's very hard to know. They might want you before you're ready. They might never want you even though you're ready. It's a very imprecise, chaotic meeting between fighter and organization. All I mean to say is, 
I feel like the guy had the fights made for him incorrectly because the UFC understandably looked at his first five fights and was like, okay, definitely good enough to be here, but he lost to Shoeface and Adesanya. He had a draw against Akhmedov. The two wins he had up to that point of the Adesanya fight were only Alberta Uda, who has no Wikipedia entry, and then Vitor Miranda, who is no longer in the organization, and I don't think um, should have been fighting. Oh, you know what? I guess you could, yeah, I'll take that back because of the weight class, but either way, Neither of them, I don't believe, are in the, in the UFC anymore. You, you're like, okay, well, he's good enough to beat those guys, which, which means he's probably good enough to be here. And he gave the other ones some trouble, but, you know, he's just not quite ready. But he turned out to be ready. He turned out that he could show over time with just the right amount of luck, because this whole thing kind of fell in his lap anyway, that he was ready for this sort of moment to shine. And, and there you have it. Um, Vittori is very good, as I mentioned, about understanding his physicality, using it appropriately, creating game plans around it. But what I really noticed in this fight in particular was, and you heard the commentators talking about it, much more patient, right? Much more deliberate in his choice of offense. I think eventually both of them kind of wore down and they started to get closer and closer to each other, which is why some of the numbers in terms of overall output look the way that it did. But in general, relative to some of his other moments in the UFC, winning or losing, he exercised some appropriate, not overly done, but appropriate levels of restraint. Um, he didn't, his punch from his left-hand side was completely chambered. Uh, he had really good top control on the ground. You saw that with getting out of some of the Omoplata submissions or you know, hitting some of the switches, right? A big guy like that, you know, he's not in all likelihood, in all likelihood, even in the gym, he's probably not going to spend a lot of time on his back playing guard. He doesn't have the longer legs like Hermanson does anyway. That's going to be a guy on top. If you're going to play that top game, it's a very dominant space to be, but your submission defense better be locked on. You better understand not letting the other guy create angles from underneath. In the case of MMA, you better have good ground and pound. You better have good... There's all kinds of things that go along with being good from that position. He has a lot of them. He has a lot of them. It's really good. The other thing that I noticed was the firepower. He would hit Hermanson, and it seemed to do more than when Hermanson hit him. Now, Hermanson, you know, he was able to secure his own pound of flesh. I don't want to deny him the great work that he had done, but there did seem to be a difference in the overall physicality. You would see Hermanson go to certain positions, like he would have that head on the outside single or the high crotch, and he couldn't finish. Uh, he had the, he, he hit the crackdown a couple of times, but he couldn't hold the position there. It just it wasn't really uh, there was a there was some technique issues on the part of Hermanson, but also the physicality and technical strength, so to speak, of Vittori in those spaces. I think caused him a lot of problems as well. Vittori said he wanted Paulo Costa next. I would love to see it. I think it's great to see this guy where he was. A lot of people dismissed his fight against Adesanya as sort of like a curious chapter in the rise of the champion. And it turns out that, no, there may have been more to the story there. Maybe at the time, he wasn't good enough to get the win. Okay, fine. But he is young enough. He trains with Rafael Cordero. He clearly has been putting in the work. And you're beginning to see that maturation, plus with some of those physical gifts that he has, really blend together and become something quite potent. That was a really nice win on his part. Let me look at, if I may, just some of the uh, numbers from Fight Metric here live. Not live because we're recording, but, you know, as I speak to you. Uh, let me see what the Fight Metric numbers were here for him in this contest. I'd be very curious. 
you know, he lands 4.78 strikes per minute. That's a lot. He eats 3.19. That's also a lot. But his striking defense, 66%. A career, that's pretty good. Well, these are the career numbers I'm giving you. Takedown average, 1.33 per fight. That doesn't necessarily tell you a whole lot one way or the other. Takedown defense, 78%. Takedown accuracy, 45 These are pretty good numbers for the most part. In terms of where he was targeting, uh, he targeted the body and the head almost exclusively. 87% to the head, 10% to the body. Not a lot of work underneath. Now, Jack Hermanson did go to the legs, but I thought he kind of got away with it. Let's see if the numbers bear that out. So five of those in the first round for Hermanson, four in the second, three in the third, three in the fourth, three in the fifth. He kind of leveled off a little bit. I mean, I, once he got away from them terribly, but they did not feature as prominently early as they did late, I think is maybe a fair way to put that. So that was one thing I was wondering as well. He was good about dealing, by the way, Vittori. With forward pressure, he was able to turn a lot when he needed to, get his back off the fence when he needed to. He was able to put, apply the pressure himself. There were some finishing issues he had, even when he knocked down uh, Hermanson, that maybe he could work on a little bit. Like, he was going for those chokes, and I know Hermanson was trying to sit up. And people were like, why are you doing that? You know, go with the punches. And that's the obvious answer, but for anyone who's ever, like, rolled, you can feel when someone is beginning to, like, disrupt your balance and begin to turn the tide. And I, I bet he felt that in his initial instinct was to uh, go for those guillotines to put him back down. So, you know, maybe some things to work on there. But certainly, a, a easiest uh, call in terms of what's his biggest win, coming of age moment, signature moment, turning the corner, all that stuff. That was a huge win for Marvin Vittori and a new entrant to the top of that division. And how old is this young, this young man? He is, as I stand, 27 years old. I mean, he made his UFC debut, let's see, back in 2016. So he was, what, 23 at the time? You know, he just, or, yeah, about 23. I mean, the guy just wasn't quite ready. He wasn't quite ready. But now you're beginning to see, and this, by the way, this got fight of the night, that he is absolutely ready and then a whole lot more. Great, great performance. And it turned out Jack Hermanson had a bunch of things broken, including his face, his orbital, orbital bone, excuse me, was broken, and he still fought through it. So tremendous resolve. Um, from the Swede slash Norwegian slash whatever he is, but he's a tough bastard uh, by any stretch of the imagination, or by any, any uh, estimation, I should say. Um, Jamal Hill defeating Ovin St. Pru. I'll have some more about that tomorrow on Morning Combat, the podcast I do for CBS Sports. Nice win by Gabriel Benitez. Oh, that knee up the middle. Son, that knee up the middle. Pretty remarkable. Uh, Roman, uh, Roman Dolidze, again, these Georgian fighters, I'm not going to be able to pronounce their name all that well. He wins split decision 28-29, 30-27, 29-28. I would have had a 29-28. I thought um, Alon did a little bit of good work in the middle part of that fight. Chris Lee, the judge in that contest, was the dissenting one. And now in all eight times when um, he's been the dissenting judge, he's been the only one among the trio of judges who was the dissenting one. So keep that in mind. Like... Um, there's never been two on the split decision. It's uh, the two other judges go one way and he goes the other. So he's on the losing end, so to speak of a split decision, but we'll have that conversation tomorrow on the air and morning combat. But for the time being, I need to do a video on Georgian fighters out of nowhere. It seems like out of nowhere, there are a bunch, not just in MMA generally, but in the UFC in particular, and they are all very good. Now, some of them are better than others. Some of them are way better than others, but they're pretty good. They're pretty good. Um, I would like to know more about what's happening there and then to put together a list of like all the names you should pay attention to. My favorite strength athlete is Georgian. And I don't mean ATL Georgia. I mean, um, you know, Tbilisi. 
uh, uh, I, I'm talking about a situation where you have, in, in the case of the strength athlete, Lasha Talahadze, he's like the sort of the heavyweight lifter of, you know, he's got, he's got the highest totals essentially um, uh, ever, uh, and then certainly in the snatch. And uh, now they've got all these good, good fighters. It's like they're just a warrior culture, it appears, or macho culture anyway. Um, kind of interesting. Jordan Levitt defeating Matt Wyman by slamming his head directly into the fence. He did it. Uh, he did it uh, uh, Gerald Harris style, right, with a forearm across the throat and then driving them down. So that was kind of interesting. Um, also, that was what happened to what was it, Ken Stone, when he fought Eddie Wineland. There's some other ones who have done it as well, but. Uh, Jordan Levitt is a Mormon. That's the meanest thing a Mormon has ever done is what he did to Matt Wyman. I mean, Matt is grayer than I am. He took five years off in the octagon. He came back. He's lost three in a row. None of them have been especially close. In fact, here is what happened in all three. He fought Luis Pena. He kept going for leg locks and just got teed off on. He fought Joe, is it Selecki or Seleski? I can never, never remember how, how to pronounce it. But he got tuned up in that one. And then Jordan Levitt KO'd him inside 22 seconds. You know, I don't know what he's doing if he just wants to fight out his contract, you know, but I don't, he should not be fighting in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. I, I think that's pretty fair. And, you know, he had a great run when he, when he did, uh, more closer to his prime. He has had phenomenal moments, but now it just appears like he's signing up and getting abused by much younger guys. You hate to see it, and, you know, I don't want to see it anymore. Uh, on your prelim card, uh, Louis Smolka getting back to action against Jose Alberto Quinones, who, which was a name that was giving. Uh, Trevor Whitman fits, uh, I believe it is Keen Yones, because uh, there's an Enye in the first N. But okay, either way, Teco is the easier way to call him. Um, Smolka looked awesome. Now, he had a little bit of trouble in the first round. He was getting backed up. Louis Smolka is a guy whose game I've broken down a few times when I did the Monday Morning Analyst. And if you look at the, uh, of Smolka, there's, there's a lot of good about him and there was some bad. The one part that was be, that was bad was sometimes he's a little bit too accommodating of what his opponent wants to do. Like he won't get. Sometimes he'll get beaten up, but sometimes he'll he'll just kind of let the other person dictate. Like, oh, we're gonna fight on the fence line now. Okay, we'll fight on the fence line, and maybe that's good for him, and maybe it's not. But he'll just allow it. It's like, why don't you fight in a way that is better for you? First round was doing a little bit of that. Colin Oyama, who is just a tremendous coach, and I wrote this on Twitter last night. Colin Oyama is not just a good coach in getting the best out of his fighter. He's very good about taking a raw underdeveloped fighter and then getting the best out of them typically when they're younger although not exclusively but he's very very good at that overall guidance process I mean some guys you can go to and like you know tune fine-tune a few things get the right game plan blah 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 and then some you need somebody to really guide your journey that's what he's very 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 good at anyway in the second round Smolka hits a uh, head and arm throw but he had to he, he had to double step it a couple times right so watch the post leg that he spins off of. He doesn't just plant and go. He actually plants and tries to throw. It doesn't work and then steps further into it. You'll see a lot of judo players hop on that leg. They're trying to, you know, they're almost trying to reset the angle or create a little motion, use a little um, motion to create lightness with the uh, with the uki um, as they throw. And so uh, you saw a little bit of that. He got it, landed perfectly, didn't overthrow it, immediately moved to mount, and from there the fight was over. He's got very good jiu-jitsu. And they noted it on the broadcast that, like, you know, uh, he may not have conventional wrestling at times, but he'll use, for example, the threat of a guillotine to stand. He did the opposite of that in the Ben Wynn fight. In the Ben Wynn fight, he actually had the dominant grappling positions. Ben Wynn was trying to stand, and he would use the threat of the guillotine to force Ben Wynn to go back down. He didn't really wrestle Ben Wynn back down. He didn't cross-face him across the face or anything like that or, you know, try to do knee on belly or something. 
he went for a submission, and then the choice that the person who has a submission being applied to them has to ask themselves are, can I stand and get out of this, or do I need to respect it and put my back down as a way to sort of escape it? And basically, more often than not, the latter would happen, but it's a nice win for him. Another Georgian, Ilya Toporia, defeating Damon Jackson. Boy, he beat the fuck out of Damon Jackson. Hit him with a rib roaster on the left-hand side, steps at an angle, I think threw another left, and then a right over the top, or maybe it was a right and then a left, but whatever the case hit him with another, uh, or threw another two punches from a different angle, and that was all she wrote. Here was, here was what was interesting about this. One, the guy just throws absolute heat. But two, he's 23 years old, already a black belt in jiu-jitsu, I think trains with MMA masters. You know, he's got, he's just checking off all the boxes, right? Then on top of it, if you watch some of the other body shots that he landed, he landed them on Jackson when Jackson was sort of sitting in the middle of the octagon, or in open space anyway. The one that was towards the end of the fight... Jackson was already backed up fully against the fence. There was nowhere else for his body to like recoil to absorb it. So he ate every bit of it. And here's how you knew he was in trouble. Once he got hit with that left hand, I mean, first of all, he got hit with the left hand. But after he got hit with the left hand, Toporia reset the angle, right? I don't want to fight you head on. I want to fight you at this kind of an angle, right? Sort of off to the side like this, where you can hit me from here, but I'm still facing this way. Jackson is so stunned by the punch, he just kind of looks over. Like, he doesn't reset his feet to kind of accommodate the angle of Toporia, meaning he was so troubled by it, he just allowed Toporia to attack him from an angle he recognized. He could see the angle, he just couldn't do shit about it. He just kind of stood there like this. Didn't move his feet at all. I mean, folks, in boxing, if you can see someone get to the side of you like that, you gotta get the fuck out of the way, (laughs) Unless you're going to throw like some kind of spinning thing or Iminari roll or something. You cannot let somebody hit you from angles. I mean, bad shit's going to happen when you do. And he just kind of followed him on the angle and didn't really move. He must have been, he must have been in pain when that body shot hit him. A guy threw absolute fucking mustard on those things. So keep an eye out for Ilya Taporia. Again, another Georgian. Just amazing. Um, Jake Collier, who is unrecognizable. I'm not trying to fat shame him, man. I'm just trying to tell you like... You know, he just doesn't look like he used to. Defeating Jean Vellante. Jean Vellante, what is, his, what is his record now? His record is 17 and 13. He has lost four of his last five. His one win in that time was a split over Ed Herman. But since then, he's lost to Sam Alvey, Michael uh, Alexic, I can't pronounce his name, Maurice Green, and now Jake Collier. And, um, you know, Jake looked spry given the conditions but i just don't understand i would love to know why he's at heavyweight given that he used to fight at middleweight and again i'm sure he's a nice guy but seems unrecognizable again fight of the night marvin vittoria jack hermanson uh gabriel benitez and jordan levitt got your other performance bonuses uh one note about this covid really messed up this whole thing and i know nobody wants to hear about covid i'll make it fast because everyone is like oh covid i want to live in a world where covid doesn't exist yeah well We all do, but that's not the world we live in. This week, it passed um, heart disease as the number one killer in the United States. Nothing kills more Americans, at least I should say, nothing last week killed more Americans than COVID. Not heart disease, not cancer, not anything. It was your number one killer last week. So uh, we have 30% of the, (laughs) what is it, worldwide cases, despite having 5% of the population. I keep telling folks this doesn't matter what you think about it. doesn't matter what I think about it. The reality is if you get it, it's going to derail your fight. And now the community spread is quite literally out of control. And so these fights being called off at the last second, the UFC is 
putting on these shows for one or two reasons. One, to get the money that they need by meeting the contractual requirement with ESPN, right? You cross a certain threshold and you get the $750 million that we believe that they are entitled to. Um, the other part is that, you know, the UFC, it would take them a lot to cancel shows. Some folks last night on Twitter were like, they should cancel the show. You're losing blah, blah, blah. They lost a third one that was not COVID-related, but they lost two at the last minute. Um, and the folks were saying, well, they should cancel the show. Dude, there was no way UFC was going to cancel that show. One, you know... Um, I could understand the argument from a good faith perspective why you didn't need to, but good faith or bad faith, UFC has, you know, they barely want, they, they, for, I think COVID was like acknowledged for the first time. They didn't even acknowledge that COVID had taken the life of Habib's father um, when Habib fought in his last pay-per-view, and they barely acknowledged it last night, and they kind of couched it as, well, you lost two fights or three fights on this card, but the December 19th card picks up two more. Sort of putting up a, a happy face, and I get it. Everyone wants a happy face, but dude, how do you how do you ignore reality when there's no audience in there? Like everyone fucking knows what the reality is. You know, do you need to dwell on it? No, you don't need to dwell on it. I'm just pointing out this is the last thing I'll say in this, and I'll move along because people lose their minds. But the last thing I'll say is, fellas, ladies, whoever's watching this, you should expect much more of this before it gets better. Much more of this. I mean, the community spread is out of control. Quite literally, it's out of control. Um, and if people aren't taking the measures that they need between quarantining and mask wearing and, you know, proper sanitation and whatever, um, you know, and they don't, if, and if, and when we're available to get vaccines, you know, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a long problem. This is not going to go away easily. The only hope is that they can create some kind of actual bubble because whatever they're creating now is quite porous, obviously. And, um, it doesn't affect the major fights. That's it. I don't, I don't know what else to say about it. Uh, Okay. So let's talk a little boxing. All right, so last night at 147 pounds uh, with 16,000 fans in the Jerry's world in Dallas, Texas, uh, Errol Spence defeated Danny Garcia. The score is 116-112 on two of them, 117-111. I believe I had it 117-111, although I could see maybe giving him Danny Garcia another round. Um, what was the story of the fight? Man, let me tell you something. I'm very disappointed in this fight. Um, I'm, I'm actually like really bitter about this whole situation at 147, which is to say the following. Everyone was like, well, how is Spence going to be after his car crash? I don't think that that was an unfair question, <clears throat> excuse me, an unfair question to ask. <clears throat> I don't because it was a pretty traumatic one. The fact that they caught it on, on tape and you could see like how insane it was. Granted, of course, we all know the story. He was ejected and then because he was ejected, he probably avoided the worst which is sort of counterintuitive, but probably correct. Um, you know, I understand I understand having some rational skepticism. And plus, he wasn't fighting a chump. Danny Garcia is a very, very talented fighter. But here's the problem with it. Like, what was the other story? It's like, okay, and this is the one I said on Morning Combat, which was, provided he has not overly suffered mental scars there were no real physical ones to get over i mean he had lacerations and stuff but as i mentioned he didn't tear his knee he didn't tear his back up no shoulder injury no no fingers missing no nothing right like it was whatever he had to get over was the trauma from the car accident and that's definitely not nothing but for a young guy like that still lots of money you, you were able to be okay in the end my hunch is that unless it did something to him you know, you guys know what the story is going to be. The story is going to be that Danny Garcia is going to be competitive and lose. And that was exactly what happened. He was competitive and he lost. Like, you know, in the end, uh, the jab of Spence was really long. 
His timing on it's very good. He took a couple rounds off a little bit towards the middle, later part of the fight. But in general, he was more active. Um, he had some success at range. And then at times, he would get into close range with Garcia, backing up along the fence, going after him there. I mean, Spence is obviously quite talented. I was happy to see him back. I was happy to see him do well. But the predictability of it all, and then, you know, the over-salesmanship, not merely from the pay-per-view providers or the promoter, but from the media as well. Like, if you don't entertain these questions, you know, you are not buying into the good faith doubt that should be there about Spence's chances as it relates to a competitor like Danny Garcia. And in the end, it was just, it was the most predictable shit. It was the most predictable thing. I'm not going to tell you it was a bad fight. It wasn't a bad fight. I'm not going to tell you that it wasn't great. Again, to see Spence back, it was great to see Spence back. And Danny Garcia made a strong account of himself. Like, it wasn't like he lost a ton of stock. But it's like, wait a second. We can sort of just say exactly how this is going to go beforehand, and it matches it exactly. And the only reason to ever doubt it was a oversold narrative about mental scars from an accident that a guy only had. Okay, I'm not going to say it wasn't a serious event, but, you know, given what it could have been, not that serious. You know. <laughs> And then you had Bud Crawford there, and I mean, the only fight to make at this point is Bud Crawford and Spence. Neither seem all that eager for it. Bud was there, but you know, the most amount of talking he did was to other hecklers. And Spence was asked who he wants next, and okay, you know, I want to take my time and stuff, but it's like, do either of you fucking guys really want this? Because if you don't, can you just tell us? Can you just stop just bullshitting us with, you know, well, we got to see what happens, and if they want it, we'll make it, and blah, blah, blah. Do you really want this? I have a, I have a suspicion that one or both could take it or leave it. Not that they don't want it. I don't believe that they're scared. But, you know, given the risk, given how much you could make instead of fighting Pacquiao, you know, is that what you really want? I don't know. It was, I did not leave feeling like, I learned something in the sense that Spence is obviously still as good as we thought he was, and that's not nothing. But I did not feel like I left getting a lot out of the experience. I did not feel like I left. I I, I didn't enjoy it. There was no, you know what it was, man? There was just no mystery to it. You know, round by round, there was a little bit of change and okay, but it's like, was there ever a moment where Garcia had like sustained offense? You know, where he was able to like build off of anything. Like there was no, there was none of that shit. There was none of it. It just it was it was like whatever you thought, not the most cynical version of it, but whatever you thought would be the most ordinary version of it is what it was. It was the most ordinary version of itself. No mystery, no intrigue. Not for me anyway. Brian, you know, obviously uh, he did an instant reaction on um, on the MK channel, and he's you know obviously a much more of a boxing diehard than I am or have been. Fine, you know, if he's glad and the rest of the boxing world is glad, great. But I don't know how you can watch that and be like, wow, we really got something out of that. You got exactly what you knew you were going to get out of it. Like, there was no additional upside to it at all. None. If he had done that and then been like, you know, done the whole DC thing. But Crawford, get your shit together, as 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 BC had said on, I think, Friday's show. I'd feel maybe a little bit better about it, but the fact that he beats him and then has this sort of languid attitude about what to do next, even if you can understand that, but it's like, I don't know, not a very positive experience, I guess is what I'm saying. But credit to Errol Spence, he looked amazing, and um, I guess we'll see.
One final note on this before we call it a, a podcast today. And by the way, I still haven't figured out the format for this thing. It may go a little bit longer. In fact, I'm sure it will go a little bit longer. Um, I'll have some different pieces to it. I'm still trying to get used to this whole thing. So please uh, bear with me if you don't mind. But the thing I would say is um, there was an... Well, I will get to most of this on MK tomorrow, um, which is Joel Romero being released by UFC. Now, my understanding is he asked for the release. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, tomorrow, in fact, obviously, as I, as I just said. But there's one thing I do want to talk about right now. There is an argument that has been circulating, certainly on social media, and it's not a claim. It's just an, it's just a, it's, it's not a claim of truth. It's just a, an argument that what UFC is probably trying to do is release people who are more expensive for people who are cheaper and just basically hope the, the, the consumer doesn't really know the difference. And uh, that cheaper version would be like a lot of contender series guys. When the UFC gets tough going again, you could probably, you know, the ultimate fighter, you could probably include those guys or ladies as well. And it's an understandable argument to make, or at least I think having rational skepticism about any promoter's motives are totally okay, right? I got to tell you folks, I would be, uh, I'm not telling you it's wrong because I don't know what's wrong. In fact, Dana White said that there's going to be like 60 or more cuts coming. I mean, understand something. The UFC has more fighters than there are players in the NBA. It's a shocking, astonishing amount. Um, if you're asking what that number is, the NBA is about 500 players. I think UFC is hovering around six or even 700. I mean, it's way too much even for their expanded schedule, even in a COVID world. Um, it's actually quite a lot because the, 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 the issue is you have to give them fights over a certain amount of time. And if you can't, then you have to pay them. And so like you're paying people just to be around, like either you can use them or you can't, but okay. Um, I would, I would encourage you to accept some, some skepticism about that, about the claim, the claim that what they're going to do is just cut out a bunch of people who are valuable and replace them with people who are, could be good down the down the line, but are not nearly as valuable just to cut labor costs. I mean, a couple of things you have to understand here. One, UFC had a tremendous year, and it, in many ways anyway, and it looks like they're going to meet their quota to get all of their contracted revenue. So uh, that's interesting. While they have lost money on the gate, um, you know, certainly they have done a, a deal with the government of Abu Dhabi to, my hunches, compensate for that and probably a little bit more. That's a guess. I don't know that, but I don't think that they're hurting for money is the point I'm trying to make. I think what they're dealing with is they probably have a bloated roster that they're burning money on in ways they don't need to. And so in that sense, they're cost-cutting. But I don't think they're cost-cutting because by virtue of, a or by a lack of it, they wouldn't have a profit. I don't, I don't think that's the way it goes. So there's that. The thing that makes skepticism, the, re the reason why I embrace skepticism for it is for two major reasons. Let me tell you about them. Okay, first... The UFC, in its most mature form as an organization, has had roughly 85%, give or take, of the world's premier talent, um, what the sport generally recognizes as the best fighters. There's a lot of ways to quantify that, but that is the sort of general way to look at it. It's about 80, 85, sometimes it's been 90, but about, let's say, 85 or so. Am I really to believe that they're going to hand over sizable chunks of that portion of their roster to their, if not competitors, to these smaller organizations so that, to then potentially become much closer to something as a competitor? When has the UFC ever done that? They have lost fighters over time, sometimes in big groups when um, a bunch of them jumped in the early stage to Rings or Pride or you know some other promoter, Rumble on the Rock or something like that, K1. And then there's been times where they've cut fighters and you didn't quite understand it, or they had the trade with Demetrius Johnson and Ben Askren, but in their mature stage, 
you know, circa the Fox Sports deal or so, something like that. When have they ever cut enough fighters and released them from their roster to meaningfully change that grip, that 85% grip on the elite side of the sport? Never. They've never done that. Now, maybe they're going to do that now for some other reason. I couldn't imagine what it is. Yes, of course, that is possible. Again, well, I, I can't tell you it's wrong because they haven't released all of them yet. We don't even know. So we'll have to see. But while I do think there'll be some big names in that list of the 60 who get released, and there'll be some that might break your heart, in general, am I ready to believe that they're going to fundamentally alter their grip on the elite portion of the market? Right, Not change it a little bit, meaningfully change it. I don't buy that at all. Not right now. Until further evidence is presented, I'm very skeptical of that. Secondly, I've, I've seen some people suggest that it's happening already. I'm skeptical of that claim too. Well, yes, some of the wheels are in motion, but I mean it's been happening for a long time. Um, how would you even make that argument? You'd have to make the argument, if the argument is they're losing out on premier talent and subbing it in with less expensive talent, you would have to argue, um, one, you'd have, to, you'd have to know how many fighters were coming or going at any given time, and you'd have to be able to show that there's a meaningful difference between what is going in and what is going out in terms of pay. I have not seen any evidence presented to that effect. Or you could say, well, they have more contender series fighters on their roster than ever. Okay, but there's not a lot of regional MMA, so that might be their only real method of recruitment or maybe their best method of recruitment to get them on there. So that doesn't say a whole lot. And then you could say, well, okay, that doesn't, you know, that by itself doesn't tell you a whole lot. But how about the number of contender series fighters per cards? Right. Well, don't some of those people deserve to be there? So like even that isn't necessarily indicative of much. I mean, listen, again, I think the skepticism of UFC or any promoter, Bellator, top rank, you name it, boxing, MMA, being skeptical of their motives to save some, some cash is totally understandable. And the UFC has, again, cut people that were sometimes really well-liked or regarded for reasons that were not all that clear. I guess the thought on Newell was that he's 44, he's lost to the champ, as well as the top contender, as well as the previous champ. You know, his road back to the title was probably doable, but not not one that he and the organization saw eye-to-eye on. And so they told him, yeah, I think he, again, I think he asked for a release, and, but either way, they parted ways. Uh, my hunch is that the people who get released will be have a similar profile, Older people who, you know, who are probably still pretty good, but um, their good days are somewhat numbered. You know, people who have like, sort of, you know, not the best record or, you know, weren't reliable as being active or, you know, all the things that they covet. Uh, it'll be something like that. But the way in which you have to prove that argument, I have not seen anyone present any evidence for it. I mean, yes, they're like, okay, they signed these guys and now Yoel is gone. Isn't that evidence? Well, no, because don't they still have about that same proportion of the grip on the elite side of the market? Yes, they still do. So until that changes, shuffling some of the individual pieces can be upsetting, but that doesn't prove that thesis is true. So, like I said, I don't know what's going to happen. We will have to see. I will wait and see, just like everybody else. And if it comes true, then we'll get on this podcast and we'll talk about how wrong I was and the UFC is really changing their business model and they're giving away, you know, significant chunks of their elite talent to lesser organizations. I will, I will make, I will crawl over glass if I need to, but for the time being juggle on the one end, be skeptical of any promoters ambitions as it relates to saving call on costs. 
and also around a thesis that claims the UFC is going to do something that they would and have never done. So well, I would never, I don't know, but certainly have never done. And what would be the motivation to do it? You're not hurting for cash in the way in which the roster cut would meaningfully change. And you're just going to give away to potential rivals your best at some of some of your better assets like that doesn't sound right at all um or they may give away some good ones but ones that don't aren't box office draws and if they start doing that then we can have a slightly different conversation let's see for the time being let's pump the brakes a little bit and that's it that's it um okay if you have any questions for me luke thomas news at gmail.com that is the place to be and uh, what else, what else, what else, what else, what else? Morning Combat tomorrow, myself and Brian Campbell, 11 a.m. on YouTube. You can go to youtube.com slash morningcombat. There's a link in the description box below. And uh, yeah, that's it. Um, I'll put this on podcast. We'll get those going on my podcast formats. So be on the lookout for that. And, and uh, until next time, get some sleep. <laughs>